welcome to the Try Not to Blink show. Today's show is going to introduce a new voice to the show, discuss new meds coming to market, and chat with a returning guest and scleral lens queen about her expertise. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. Makers of the stellar gas permeable lenses and the incredible custom stable scleral lens. I'm your host, Dr. Roya Habibi. So sorry, y'all, for our summer break. We've had some downtime after over 200 episodes and decided we wanted to give our listeners a Try Not to Blink 2.0. Next version, updated version. So in the coming weeks, hopefully you'll enjoy the updated version of our show. Hear from some new voices, have some new content. We're pretty pumped about it. Um, So let's do this. Hosting with me today is a extra special guest. You've all heard from her from her at least twice, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it is the honorary, none other but Dr. Sheila Morrison. Hi, Sheila. Hi. I love it. That's a wonderful introduction. <laughs> well, let me so give nice a proper to be here. for anyone who doesn't remember, missed the previous episodes, whatever it might be. Dr. Morrison is from, she's native from Alberta, Canada. She has done her schooling at uh, Pacific University. She got her doctorate in optometry, of course, and she has her master's in vision science. After that, she went to, uh, she continued there and did a residency in uh, cornea and contact lens, then decided she loved school. So she joined a new faculty or as, as faculty at University of Houston at College of Optometry, where she was part of the contact lens and cornea service. And after a little while, she was like, you know, U.S. is cool and all, but I want to go international again. She's back in Canada. She practices at Mission Eye Care. They have a dry eye and cornea disease specialty center in Calgary. She also has a a co-residency coordinator. Sorry, she is a co-residency coordinator for the Mission Eye Care Cornea and Contact Lens Residency. It's a a program affiliated with Northeastern State University or Oklahoma. She's actually a blast. Yeah, 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 that's new. That's a blast since the last time we had you on. We haven't had. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, no, it's a brand new thing for our office. It's actually it's been a lot of fun. I know you know that I always miss the schools. I really miss the time that I spent there. It was a. It's been. It's a. It's a huge passion, and so we have a resident now, Dr. Lynn. It's fun this morning before I hopped on over here to meet you, Roya. We had her do her first presentation today in the clinic, and it was for our staff, and she did fantastic. What is so, Do you just like, like how do you figure out the topic? Like you're like, hmm, so we let her up? do her own thing. So we want her to be creative. She hasn't doesn't have a lot of experience with presenting to large groups yet, and so we she actually went out and asked the staff, what do they want to hear about? Where what would they like to hear from her? I like, that. and they asked her to talk about surgeries and optometry. So she did a nice overview covering a little bit of a focus on, you know, anterior segment because that's, you know, what her residency is in, but it's fun. I got a few reminders on posterior surgeries and things like that today too. So it's it lovely. Okay. Yeah. So now I feel like I'm a hybrid clinician teacher again. It's a lot of fun. So this is your first resident. Yeah. Correct. You went through the match. You did, the, you were super official. Yeah. Did. Love did. It. Super official. Yeah. How yeah. hard is it as a like for in the past, I've thought like, especially at my old clinic, this would be a fun option for you. First of all, getting a little help. Like what was your motive as a, you know, as an, you're an associate at your clinic? I'm or? an associate. Yes. And so I've, I, I joke around that I returned to Canada and wrote the quote, wrote the coattails of Dr. Andrea Lasby. Yes. So I hope she's listening Woo-hoo. because 
I was able to return back to my home province to a practice that was already established. Of course, it's grown a lot since I've joined it. Um, and so between the two of us, she did her residency at Oklahoma. We've always carried um, kind of a shared passion for teaching, lecturing, education, kind of the rising tide, right? So we want our, our colleagues in the community to have more understanding of especially medical contact lenses. Um, and so the motivation was kind of there from our root. But the second part is, I don't know if you know this, Canadians really do not have near the opportunities in residency, especially in cornea contact lens compared to the rest of the world or the rest of the United States. Um, borders are a little trickier than they used to be. Canadians do not have have open options, and so we so wait decided they don't to, have options because they're not there aren't options in the in Canada or that that's right okay. yeah and the board and it's difficult to get the uh, many schools that once took Canadians uh, over the last few years with changes at the border and just being so intensive to get the right visas and delays and starts have discontinued accepting students outside of the U.S. and so the choices are smaller they're very competitive. Um, and so we actually, Andrea started the process through the University of Oklahoma, who she's affiliated with, and basically did all that groundwork to get a residency program going here to offer a little bit more. We, we accept American candidates too. Love that. With, first of all, okay, I have two questions, but I want to start by saying with the residency, obviously you have your altruistic reasons, but as like, as a from a practice owner's perspective, or even as an associate, what benefits do you get with a resident? Right? Because it seems so like then, a lot of work too, yeah. right? Like you got to teach yeah. them, you've yeah. got to do all these, you know, like things to it provide value for them. Right. But like, it's what is, is there so value? Like, I, I didn't mean it in the yeah, nicest so, way, right? But like, is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I have the sniffles. From, I'm doing my best oh, to ignore them, but there's only so much I can do. <laughs> <laughs> this is real life. This is That's real okay, life, right? right? We won't judge you. That's all right. This, so we we so of course the altruistic. We love the process. It's a blast. It's be you know that it's it's really energizing. So all that la la la. You know where what's the bottom line? Yes. So the goal. So initially in the first half, especially where the resident is working off of our schedules, it's very obviously you know we she's she's very quickly becoming a helping hand in the clinic. So we're able to see a few more patients, but really no. But where we're headed is in the second half of the residency, she'll have her own schedule. And so that increases the number of patients we see, um, increasing revenue. So that's the goal is, is for it to essentially balance out with a little on the plus side. But how so are you going to deal with that when she's done and then there's no longer, right? Like, will you just keep that extra lane? So we do. So we do. And so will we then we get next year's resident and the process repeats. And so, and what we do is we have um, certain patients are, are going to be kind of resident patients, depending. So they'll always be connected to their primary OD. So that'll be myself, Dr. Lasby, Dr. Capilani has now joined us, who's residency trained as well. And so it's basically, we expand our schedules during that time period, and then it'll repeat again in the next year. So the resident will go back on our schedule where we do see patients at a little faster velocity, we'll say. Um, and she'll, she hops in right now and sees patients on my schedule or Andrew's schedule um, uh, and, but then by the second part of the residency, and she's getting there very quickly already, we'll be expanding the schedule to see more patients on her schedule. That's, that's just for her. Okay. So the way the numbers work out in theory and the way it, we project it is that it'll be a little bit on the plus side for the practice as well. In addition to kind of all the other perks that come with having a resident, you know, we love to teach, um, patients actually, it's pretty fun to have patients. 
um, who do have a background in education, they love it. They like to be made that that special patient that can explain the whole story to teach a student yes. and pass the knowledge on. And their their story is so special and so you know what I yes. mean. Yes, they feel so that, they feel extra fun. special. Yeah. They're they're like yeah. a problem becomes like a highlight, yeah. right? So they yes, and they're they're the only one in the world with that of problem. Course, of course. So they have to be able to teach that to the resident. Of but there are patients that we do not that are not resident patients as well because it is a private practice. And so maintaining you know our Google reviews and the time sometimes patients don't have time. Um, so it goes both ways. Totally. So we control everything for the schedule. Yeah. Totally. Very interesting. Okay. Second question is, as you came back to Canada and joined the, you know, renowned Dr. Lasby, she like, she has, she's a queen in the like scleral lens. Like she's established, right? How were you nervous about having, being able to have enough patients Right. Like, I feel like that's an intimidation factor, whether you're joining a practice that already has someone's fitting scleral lenses or whether it's um, a competitor nearby, whatever it might be, finding your niche and then still having your own patients and not stealing from, you know, that I feel like always people mm-hmm. talk about stealing and it's the most annoying thing. But how did you feel and what what would you give as a word of advice for the new grads coming out, the new residents coming starting. out? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So, it, you know, Coming back to our area with some of the training that I had, just knowing that there weren't as many people with the training that I came with, I, I really wasn't worried about it. I guess I didn't really have time to think about it because before I knew it, I was busier than I could, you know, even imagine. Um, I would, I would say that just, you know, achieving, if you're wanting to come back into any specialty, make sure that you are getting a few extra things done in terms of education to separate yourself from, we'll say competitors or colleagues. Um, and the patients find you, you know, it's, it really, it really wasn't a hard process for me at all. Um, and, uh, of course that helped coming into a practice that was already probably a little too busy for Andrea on her own. Um, and just doing things in the community to kind of set yourself up, visiting local OMDs, visiting offices nearby, medical clinics, just to put out your own business card and say, look, this is my training. This is where I'm at. There, p- patients just come. So don't be scared. No, don't be scared. Just practice, just play your game, you know, play your, play your, play your game to the best of your ability and just do that, you know, to the highest of your ability without being, don't be nervous about competition. There is no competition if you're the best at what you do. So getting more education, trying, you know, never being satisfied with where you're at and, you know, attending CE and doing things to participate in the community. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. Love that. Next new thing I want to talk about, just a little teaser. It's been a few months since we've had some new new uh, shows, but there has been a lot of new news that have come out in the meantime. So little breeze over this because I feel like we have a lot of content that we need to just dive into full episode worthy. But there have been three new FDA approvals in eye care alone in the past few months. Most recently, I love these names. Eyes or vey. <laughs> this is from Astellas Pharma. It's a treatment for geographic atrophy based on the Gather 1 and Gather 2 studies, up to 35% reduction in the progression for patients treated for, for geographic atrophy. So really, really interesting medication available. Number two, Exdenvi by Tarsus. <laughs> first, their first treatment, this came out in July, for Demodex blepharitis. I feel like we have a lot, a lot to talk about there because it doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. And there's really good data to show how effective it is. Um, Sheila, we have, we need to invite 
Dr. Leon to talk about this one, no? Absolutely. I'm, I, have, I have so much I want to say, but I've, I'm going to hold my tongue. It's hard to do that. Then third, in May, we had MIBO. This is approved for the treatment of signs and symptoms of dry eye based on the Gobi and the Mojave <laughs> studies. Love those names. Um, but it is the first FDA approval, first and only, that directly targets tear evaporation instead of formation. So kind of interesting. So lots to talk about here. Won't go too in-depth, but a lot of new things coming in and new tools for our arsenal and kind of all ranges, but especially in dry eye, it's interesting that so much is coming out in the dry eye field alone, right? When we, when I first talked to Sheila about coming on, we've been brainstorming, having, having this show together, having kind of a new and improved, try not to blink 2.0. And I kind of put it on Sheila. I was like, this is you, like, you need to figure out what to do for the show. And that, like, you did good. Oh, it's a, it's a easy, it's a no brainer. It's, it's in our world every day right now in the clinic, you know, trending so much in, uh, I would argue like all areas of medical care, you know, is looking at whole body. People are interested in more like overall treatments to get to the root of problems and what that has brought us to. And in the kind of the age of inflammation, you know, dry eye, ocular surface disease, things that impact our ability to wear contact lenses. Um, you know, it plays inflammation plays such a big role that, you know, we really um, need to dig a little deeper into things like gut health or, you know, what about inflammation in our bodies causes inflammation on the eye in a variety of different ways. And so Dr. Walker is, it was an absolute perfect person to come in and bring in to talk about this because her lab is largely focused and has been focused um, for a long time now on inflammation on the eye that does present or manifest in, you know, fogging beneath a scleral lens is where it all kind of started. And just in chatting with her over the years, it's been really fun to see what direction inflammation takes us, whether that's, you know, dry eye symptoms, fogging beneath a lens. And now we're learning more about keratoconus and the impact of inflammation uh, in the body that can cause that. Love it. Well, let's go straight to it. Okay. I felt like there's no better time to do this than now at the, you know, pivot point of something new and fresh with the podcast, especially with Sheila. <laughs> there was no better first person to talk with than our like main squeeze BFF, uh, like uh, academy buddy or not just academy, like the lecture. Inter- Why can't I think of the word conference well, buddy? You- I think you're referring to work wife or something like that or some kind work of sisterhood or something that's really special because that sums up our I speaker like tonight or today, whenever, so, whatever time you're listening. So whatever day you're, li- you're right, you're right, you're right. Exactly. I think it's like, okay, yes, sisterhood, but also like girl bosses. Can we just like give like a round of clap, uh, finger snaps for that? <laughs> So, without further ado, we have Dr. Maria Walker. She, if you are an avid listener, have been around for a while. She was actually back in the day, back in episode 74, we're at 250, by the way, <clears throat> back in November 2019, she was on the show with us. Um, but just a little refresher for anyone who missed that show, she is... A do- you know, like the people you see and they have like a bunch of letters, like more than just your O D F A O F you know, all the letters. She's like, nah, not enough. She is, um, so she went to New England College of Optometry. She did her optometry degree there, of course, but she also did a master of vision science. Afterwards, she's like, nah, not enough. I'm going to do a residency. She did that in cornea contact lens at Pacific. 
She was like, huh, school's not enough. I need more. So she joined uh, faculty over at Houston. Uh, she is currently tenure track now as an associate professor. But being a teacher wasn't enough either. She's like, I need a PhD. So since we last talked to her, she completed her PhD in 2021 in physiological optics. Her dissertation will go into... I mean, kind of, let's just talk about it. dissertation was on the impact of scleral lenses on the eye, right? What can you give us a elevator pitch of your dissertation? Sure, sure. Yes. Um, hi, by the way, thank <laughs> you for having me back. I think like, are we three musketeers ish a little yes, bit? Like that I was like always that. like, yeah. Maybe Charlie's Angels, something like oh, that. Charlie's oh, Charlie's Angels. Actually, yeah. Sheila and I have been called that, but I think, that, <laughs> I think I like this. that's a story for another day. But <laughs> um, so yeah, so my, my dissertation was basically on just the impact of scleral lenses on the eye. So I sort of fell into it a little bit, honestly, because I wasn't really planning on doing a PhD, but I was doing research and I was doing scleral lenses. And I sort of quickly realized in my re residency, like how much we don't know about how it impacts the eye. So then I, I literally, believe it or not, anyone who has a PhD will laugh at this, but um, I was like, well, I might as well just get the PhD because I'm doing the research anyways. So I might as well just get the degree while I'm doing the research. So basically all the people who are like, yeah, we don't know that. You're like, okay, we don't know that. And I want to find it out. Like, are you just like the kind of person that's like, yeah, exactly. Curious like, and just I would not get... satisfied with like, I don't know. Yeah, like hundred percent. Like it was, and it was all scleral lenses, right? So you did a residency a year or two after me, I think, right? So it was pretty new still, like relatively for residents. And I remember talking to Pat Caroline, and I was like, "Well, what is that?" Well, he's like, "We don't know. Like <laughs> nobody knows. Like they seem to be better than the other lenses." But so you know. wait, so then in a <laughs> dissertation, this might be a stupid question, but was it just like, okay, impact of scleral lenses on the eye? Answer. Did your answer have a question? Like, what is the yes. answer? Answer, yes. Answer, good. Green no, light, okay. yellow light. So we were basically, so we did it all on normalized. Actually, I sort of had like half keratoconus, but then COVID hit. So I kind of couldn't recruit patients anymore. But so the three chapters looked at three different outcomes, right? One was what were the lipids in midday fogging? Um, and then another one was like, the question was, does scleral lens like impact the optic nerve vis-a-vis -vis changing IOP during scleral lens wear? And then God, what was the other one? Oh, then the other one was, is there like, inf like, does the scleral lens wear increase like inflammatory proteins in the tears? So, you know, to answer those questions, like, yes, it does increase inflammation, but in some ways it might be good. Okay. Um, okay. And yes, it does sort of change the optic nerve physiology, but the the amount that it changes it is probably not that bad for someone who's not susceptible, but it does make me more careful fitting glaucoma patients. Um, and then what was, and then the other one was nonpolar lipids contribute to midday fogging, which I think is like the exact title of the paper that I published mm -hmm. on it. I so. See. That's so that's it in a nutshell. Yellowish greenish. Like keep driving, but like just don't speed. I would even say, yeah, yellowish greenish for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's one of those things we were actually chatting the other day about as a clinician, because now I'm full time in the clinic. 
you know, full patient schedule, I really rely on the, the colleagues like Maria to get out there and get that evidence because we yes. find with one question that's answered, for example, in your dissertation, there's another dozen that need to be answered from there. Um, inflammation is trending, obviously. I mean, that's something that I know you've studied really carefully. And I know we wanted to dig a little deeper today to learn a bit more about where you're headed with in your lab. I mean, I know that's that's what your dissertation was. What's hot happening in the lab now? Yeah, so I so my lab is kind of two sort of areas, but they overlap a lot, right? So I do scleral lens research and I do keratoconus research. And so um, there's kind of two, I think are my kind of my two most interesting projects right now. One is looking at like exactly what is in the like tear fluid in the scleral lens fluid reservoir in keratoconus patients. Um, but then also we're looking at like, what's the like inflammatory like cells and inflammatory proteins on the ocular surface, just in keratoconus without even wearing okay. a scleral lens. So, okay. But like yeah. in the bowl of the lens, real talk, like how are you yeah. like taking the lens off face down yeah. and capturing yeah. and like yeah. pouring it into a little pipette or how does that like, yeah. give me the logistics here. <laughs> So it's super fun. So it's like, it's actually really fun and everyone loves it. So you basically like put your tilt your head down, right? And then I just, I have them hold their lower lid and I take the upper and I like slow, I have videos of me doing this. I slowly take it off. And then over the years, we've evolved a pretty good protocol. So we actually then rinse the lens with 20 microliters of saline, collect all of it. Oh, yeah. We bring it upstairs. We isolate, we separate the cells. We like spin it in a centrifuge. All the cells and debris comes down. You're left with like the proteins and things and the supernatant. And so we like do different things with all of them. So we can look at the cells. We look at the proteins. We look at the like debris and like schmutz so whatever dorky like, love this you're like it's mm, really fun. let's collect tears yeah. yeah so i just collect it from patients i give them 10 bucks they're every single one so it's like, yeah 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 i remember, I had a, I remember I had back, back in the day so the first samples that were taken back in the day of these early scientific techniques yeah. lipid was i know something that you found in those samples what what else is in there so you mentioned proteins inflammatory stuff what what is that what is in there what's in the fog yeah so it's it's different right so like you mentioned the fog right so obviously some people in one of my big research areas has been like the midday fogging um so when you have that fogginess it's it's cells and lipids and they're and a lot of the lipids are from cell walls we think um so you get like meibomian gland lipids like ester like cholesterol esters and wax esters which are the primary meibomian gland lipids but then you also get like um the uh like phospholipids which are like you look up phospholipids it's like they make up a cell wall mostly so i think you're getting like a bit of both um but it really kind of depends like we all know you see some people it looks a little different than others i think some people have more like immune cells that are like breaking down um because we also do see it's actually more inflammatory we're doing a study right now that shows um and we're actually looking at interventions finally like looking at using i won't say what brand but it's a preservative free artificial tear um, and you see the cells go down, the inflammatory proteins go down. Wait, so you're um, using yeah, the so tear as a tear or you're using yeah, a tear no, to fill as the, the bowl? 
to fill the bowl of the lens. So that's the application solution. And um, yeah, so basically you get midday fogging like objectively goes down. We all kind of knew that, but it's like we haven't had good data showing that. And then, but the really cool stuff is we're looking at like the inflammatory proteins, like the Mm -hmm. interleukins, which are like the primary inflammatory cytokines on the ocular surface and they all just go down. So so if there's fog then in the clinic, what what does that mean for us? Does fogging mean inflammation for a patient or does it not, is it allergy based? Is it, is it bad to have fog? You mentioned some findings in your studies said that maybe inflammation is not bad or that the fog is not bad. What's good and what's bad about it? Yeah. So to sort of answer that question a little bit backwards, like the, so inflammation when you have a contact lens on in some ways is, is okay. Cause you do have a heightened risk for infections and there's probably stuff on that lens, even if you clean it as good as you can. Um, so you want to have a little bit of a heightened response, but when it's prolonged and then it contributes to other inflammatory conditions, then, then it's not so good. So is, is midday fogging bad? Um, and is it inflammatory? Um, I used to sort of say, eh, it's not so bad. It's probably just like sloughed off epithelial cells. Now it's, I mean, it's not so much inflammation that you're like, you can't wear the lens anymore, but it's more inflammation than when you're wearing a lens and you can avoid having that. So you get more inflammation because the biggest thing that's, that's also coming in there is neutrophils, which are like the primary, basically like immune attack cell. So when you have those there, like it's, you have inflammation. There's a like problem. There's no, there's no doubt about it yeah there's a problem there's like good problem. or it's just like well, somebody's like on guard well so neutrophils eat bacteria right that's their primary purpose so you want them there if there's bacteria there if you have you know say somebody puts saline in and it's from a bottle of you know x saline and it has some a few things in it like that's not that that's not going to be an infection for the eye because you have neutrophils. I'll I will pick those up. You know, not a big deal because you have it on your hands yes. and you have this stuff everywhere. It's so impossible it's, to you're be gonna perfectly have sterile. Bacteria, right? Like there's bacteria on the ocular surface. We know that, right? But it's there's a balance. It keeps it's kept in check by the neutrophils. You get a bunch of neutrophils on the eye every night when you sleep. Like that's one of the biggest things I study in my lab. So you have this huge influx. Uh, of things. And I know not to like jump too much, but you know, one of the things I know Sheila and I have been talking about recently is like the association of other systemic immune conditions, right? So like I've been learning all about like neutrophils and, and what their role is in normal and in heightened uh, inflammatory diseases. And so a lot of these systemic autoimmune diseases, it's a dysregulation of the neutrophils, which are good. They go into all these tissues overnight to like clean up phagocytitis bacteria, clean up dead cells. That's the other thing. You have to get back to midday fogging. You got all these cells in there. Something has to phagocytose those and get rid of them. And that's what neutrophils are there to do. Yeah. Good word, right? <laughs> so it sounds like word. it's about finding that balance. The yeah. you know the Goldilocks, not too much, not too little, but yeah. just right. So in the clinic, I mean, before I actually, you know, the systemic sort of side of things is something that comes up all the time in the clinic. You know, with our dry eye patients, contact lens patients, and I want to I want to pick your brain a little bit about what you're learning or what you might suspect related to even things like gut health and how does that play a role in inflammation and does that systemic inflammation contribute to midday fogging or other ocular surface disease. But, you know, back, so in the clinic, then from a really practical standpoint, so we say we have a patient who's fogging 
Mm-hmm. You know, first, do you, you know, suspect systemic conditions? Do you suspect inflammation? Do you look at lens fit first to solve it? You know, how do we start? Do we yeah, what you know, is look the at the fluid? So, yeah. and then at what point, once we've, like, what do we try first? Solving yeah. their systemic health or looking at a, a lens solution? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of start with like the easiest things, depending on what the patient is, right? Like if I look and the fit looks perfect, I'm not going to like change the tour, right? If I look in the lens is like slashing around on the eye, I see like things going in and out. Yeah, sure. You need a lens that fits pretty well. Um, but you also like, if I see a lens that I don't know if it's perfect, I'll first, I'll ask the patient, I'll be like, has this been a thing you've had with like all your lenses or is it just this lens? Because that's a huge difference, right? So the lens can induce it. But in my experience, it's usually, it's a patient thing and they're going to have it in most lenses or they're not going to have it. Um, but I do get the occasional where they're like, I didn't have it in those, all those other lenses. And now I have, it. I'm like, okay, well, that's a lens issue. We'll change. That's a good tip. I like that one. (laughs) Moving forward. Well, okay. Kind of on the same thing, sort of like, especially in the realm of midday fogging, right? One, one thing that comes up sometimes is let's just, let's go like, like nitty gritty here for a second lens size, right? Like as we all have this trend of fitting larger, it also, number one, is pulling out the people who don't really know how to adjust the edge, right? And number two is allowing more fluid exchange slash sometimes more fogging, right? So sometimes people will say, okay, I liked my old small, you know, that fit that you were like, God, you don't need, like, how do you even have limbal stem cells right now? But I don't know, like, Obviously, a good fit is important for the health, but there is that a little bit where it's like small, tight lenses. Yeah. I don't know. Run on that comment. Yeah, no, that's you bring up a great point. And so that's why it's like dynamic. You know, there's not just one answer for one person, because, yes, if you have a small, tight lens that just closes down the limbus. Um, certainly if you're not going to get lipids from the meibomian glands, most likely, and you're not probably going to get neutrophils because that's, I think what's probably coming from the limbal vasculature. So if you have that area open, yes, you might get immune cells, but I would argue like shutting that off is not going to be long-term better for the eye necessarily. Um, but, and, and I just, for me, like if I'm fitting too, so I kind of agree with your sentiment on like the, those limbal stem cells, it's, you know, but some patients can tolerate that and you take the lens off and they have no staining and everything's Crazy. great and they don't have fogging. And I'm like, fine, like go for it. I'm not, you know, I, but I tend to, and I tend to fit in the like 16 to 17 millimeter range. So I try to avoid some of the issues of those large, large lenses while still getting some of the benefits from the small. Cause I agree it's kind of like lens, like soft lenses, right? Patients love it, like super tight and like strangling their eye, but it's like, it's not necessarily good long-term for the health of your eye, but you got to decide what's good for that patient in a way, you know? Those are the worst but, when you see them and you're like, this is awful. I'm refitting you. Yeah. And they're like, but I love my lens. Well, especially <laughs> ocular surface disease patients, mm-hmm. right? Because they typically, just for the health of their eye, you want to get more coverage. But as soon as you open up, I just had a patient who came in with this like tiny lens with Stevens Johnson's and we refit into her a larger lens. And now it's like all sorts because now she's like feeling it on her conge and just all sorts of things. So it's so like, it looks good on the better. doctor side patient. I know. You take the time to refit. It's like your best work ever. And then they just come back in with their old and you're like, yeah, what? And I just sent a note off about a patient that I have who's, who's a vent. 
He's yeah, a year old yes. hybrid. You know, I've improved oh, that no. fit several times and she continues to dump him off at the office and email me to notify me she's wearing her old lens again that's no. four and a half years old that she won't throw away. No. I'm like, why? No, but she's happier. No. I just can't solve it. I got to move her into something different. <laughs> yeah. Hybrids are yeah. like the bane of my existence. Bane. I I can't even. I can't even. <laughs> Honestly, your only no saving comment. grace will no be a ripped lens. Like, not that we want to ask that on anything, but a ripped lens will be what finally is your pivot point. Although, I don't know. I've had, and this is like on sclerals. I had a patient recently who's like literally going on for tw- 10 minutes. And like, I'm trying to move on and like move through. I'm getting other stuff done. But about, you know, this one lens at work, I'm like, where's the lens? Give me the lens because I've never seen this lens. And you're telling me like your vision is not good. You've had multiple RDs. You've got a scleral buckle. He's like super pathologic biope with keratoconus. And, and he's like, oh, well, the lens broke. I'm like, well... You know, your you vague memory so of great. pre like, you sure all your it was better. Like, <laughs> well, and I'm just like 20, yeah, 20 years ago, it probably was a little better. Yeah, yeah you also were not myopic then, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, funny. patience. Bless their hearts. I love these people. I do. I, I know. I know. We love hate them. Right? <laughs> well, I say we wouldn't, like, I, I say it all as all both sides. We have these kind of like side memes going because it is quite entertaining, honestly, yes. at times. But none of us would have any purpose or right, you know practices right. without our patients. So I was yeah, bring right. that back to I like I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's yeah. a great point. Maria, so, right, you want me to get to my next yeah, well, my the, next tip for so, you on so midday we, fogging? Yeah, yes. So if we know so if we are we so if we what you're saying is we want to just look at the fit, look at the history. Once we establish that that lens is probably as optimal as it's going to be and that they're still fogging, then we know that it's true post reservoir fogging. And then we start thinking about what is what is could be causing that as far as inflammation. Yeah. Is that is that the path? Yeah. So I think so. Say you're like, okay, my fit looks good. It's like, like say it's like a meat, right? Like I wear sclerals and I get fogging, but like my eyes don't look red. I look, you know, pretty whatever. But I just have this like de- like flaky debris in there, right? So there's a couple of things. So yes, it's probably going to be more inflamed. So I think the easiest thing that everyone should do is change the application solution. So two, so one thing to do and one thing to maybe not do. So one thing, because we were actually looking at, okay, what if we change the application solution and what if we do an eye wash? Because you know how some people will talk about like, oh, you can like kind of rinse the eye a little bit in the morning and that mm-hmm. will help. We actually found, we did six people in a pilot study and every single one of them was like, things are worse Worse. when I rinse the eye, like worse than if I didn't do anything. So we stopped, we didn't even include that in the main study, which I thought was kind of interesting because I thought that eye wash was, and I like did it myself too. And I was like, no, this is not good. (laughs) I just, it like made your eye kind of like raw or something. And then it like put it, it was like, it dried it out or something. So, but using the non-preserved artificial tears, comfort like but and, and we knew again we know this anecdotally so and it reduces inflammation so i'm like if you have availability to that it's off label i don't care do it like that that would be the easiest it's the the problem is is it can be expensive obviously like i'm not immune to that um so yeah changing the application solution i think is like the best thing the other thing that i almost always do despite especially if they have allergies is prescribe an allergy medication. Just like, like we have Pataday that went over the counter here or whatever a couple of years ago now. So I don't know what you guys have in Canada or Costa Rica. But We've got it all. We have, yeah. we have the same. We have the same. Olo Paladina. 
Oh, oh sounds so much it. more yeah. like fancy here, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like that just reduces the inflammation in general. So why not? Yeah. Um, okay. So just very what- off topic, but like um, the newish Acuity product that has it's Ketotyphen, right? Oh, the- Thera, uh, the Thera tier, or whatever it's called. Thera Vision. Yeah. What is your thoughts in that general application, but in the world of scleral lenses, right? Putting it in the bowl of the lens, or I don't know. Any thoughts? I, yeah, I have lots of thoughts. I have lots of thoughts on like drug delivery. So I, I haven't used, Sheila can, can talk about the Thera if she's used it, but we don't have it in the States yet. But, um, it's, I think it's great. I think, you know, I think in general, I'm always cautious. Like, I don't think we should just throw medication on everything. And maybe if we take a tangent on nutrition before we end, Sheila, I know you'll be pleased. But um, so I always <laughs> do try to like talk to patients about like, this is like long term, like, the, you know, the way what you eat, how much water you drink, what supplements, whatever you need to do, um, you know, but but in terms of the ability when you need to deliver a therapy, prolonged therapy over the surface of the lens, I think the absolute coolest and best applications I've heard of for sclerals aren't necessarily in the allergy, right? That's a catodophen, um, that soft lens. Um, I think it's in the use of um, like VEGF, not VEGF, um, like anti-VEGF for neovascularization as well as like they did like bevacizumab, I think. And then also in um, for uh, like growth factors for things like NK, like we have the nerve growth factor oxervate medication, mm-hmm. um, which for these patients who have NK, right, they have neurotrophic keratitis, like prolonged exposure to a growth factor that will help heal them. It's like these people are putting it in like six times a day. So like to use the scleral lens for that and maintain and like antibiotics for like a fungal ulcer or something anti-fungal. Like it's, I think that's just such a like under, I don't know why I was just talking to Sheila about this the other day too. It's like we have this, or it wasn't Sheila, it was Andrea last night at dinner um, about, you know, like we have this mantra of like, Oh, you have an infection on the cornea contact lenses discontinue forever. Um, I get that with like soft extended wear lenses, but like we're forgetting to like recalibrate that discussion because a scleral lens with a proper therapy in it is going to be better than nothing or better than protective shell. And what about, and I mean, blood biologics too, you guys, I mean, we've been, Oh yeah. We've been using this for years. And again, I still, I do love Maria, your sentiment of, you know, I don't necessarily endorse or recommend just dumping stuff in a lens. Again, this is all off-label use. Like, what are we doing? So this is where, again, we are leaning on your kind, your little researchy type to get in there and provide more guidance for clinicians. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dora. We're talking about eyes on a podcast. Like we love it. (laughs) Well, and if you're talking about therapeutic treatments, like those yeah. are the most diseased eyes That's we're right, dealing yeah. with in yeah. terms of cornea usually. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Like it cannot be done willy nilly and needs to be like very thoughtful. Yeah. And especially with production, you know, like quality control of producing sterile things yeah. to put in there That's and making right. sure that they are sterile yeah. and that they're not. I mean, I have a lot of patients that do really well with some form of blood biological, whether it's PRP drop or autologous serum. But those cases we do follow a little more closely. You know, what are we actually creating beneath that lens? Is that causing fogging? Is it causing any change to the cornea that we don't like? 
I don't, I've seen more positives than negatives. That's why I do it still. But again, in the long term, these are such cool areas of research for delivery of all kinds of medications and solutions and everything. Very, very cool stuff. Well, I think too, I will just say too, anecdotally and on the same topic of you saying about the eyewash, a lot of, especially some of the cornea specialists that I would see or co-manage with, especially in patients that have pain or, you know, any reason that they had been prescribed autologous serum elsewhere and then came to me and we were fitting scleral lenses, they were often told by other providers, you need to take your lenses out to put your your serum drops in. And while there's definitely a little bit of merit to the idea of that, probably especially because of the idea of a soft lens, there's also like, I, I don't know, I feel like that's more irritating to the eye as opposed to like you could pull put a drop in the bowl of the lens, it sits on the eye far longer, it's going to re- be retained on the surface far longer than than not. And putting it over the lens. I mean, what do you think about putting it over a scleral lens? I had a patient one time say that, I mean, like, What's it's not going to do. Right. Well, it's not going to hurt it. <laughs> You're kind of cardia. wasting your drop, but. 100%. <clears throat> yeah. It's I like putting, know. it's like having a Band-Aid on a cut and just putting it on <laughs> <laughs> your ointment on top. And just hoping some seeps in the sides. It's like, yeah, yeah. you might get some in there, but. <laughs> It's not going to hurt it. Maybe it'll help the surface a little. Maybe the outer, like, you know, the conch, who knows. But that's not why you're spending big money. It depends on, yeah, it depends on where the medication's meant to go. If it's going to the cornea, like, that's not a good use of the. (laughs) That's a medication. Guys, if we're, so if we're looking at, you know, this is moving toward the nutrition prompt that you gave me, Maria, because. When it comes to, you know, managing these patients, we're not really, we're not just dealing with, you know, an eyeball with a contact lens on it. You know, as far as, you know, the best practice is looking at a person as a whole, right? Integrating body systems. And Maria, I know you've done some cool work recently looking at systemic impacts. So like, what if our foggers or our patients with this inflammation, you know, what if the next level, which I know some of us are starting to do is looking at our body health. How does the body health, systemic health, gut health impact potentially have a role in inflammation? I do want to hear a little bit about what you kind of suspect or what you've seen in the lab, Maria, just because it's such an important thing. It's almost trending today with nutrition and health and wellness and everybody's trying to look at all of the parts of a whole person, which is a great thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a really positive thing to move in that direction. In particular, gut health and what do we, what we eat, what we consume. Yeah, you know, so it gets incredibly complicated to study that sort of thing, of course, right? So in terms of like the midday fogging, like that's, there's like, there's, we're nowhere near understanding anything about that. But like what I'm more studying in keratoconus, like for sure, um, there's more and more and there's, you know, there's almost a surprising lack in some sense, because there's a few studies that have shown associations between immune disease, like, and basically inflammatory immune systemic diseases. So things like inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, um, and then some like inflammatory thyroid, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And then of course, we all know allergies, atopy, uh, vernal keratoconjunctivitis, all of those from one study or another have been shown, some of them stronger than others to be associated with keratoconus. And it's including things like sleep apnea too. People don't necessarily realize that if you're not in that like research space, but there's a very high prevalence of sleep apnea in keratoconus patients as well as obesity, right? And so we know that a lot of those diseases, you think nutrition, 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 a lot of them are 
intestinal tract diseases. Um, but one of the things that a lot of those all have in common as well is being some sort of uh, autoimmune condition, right? And so any, I, I'm convinced, and again, the, the research on this is so complex and so multifactorial, right? Because not everything is what I put into my mouth, right? I also live in an area, there's pollution, there's industrialization. In the industrialized world, we see a huge increase in these autoimmune type of conditions. Um, but, you know, if you think more existentially about it, kind of, it's like, well, of course, the things that I put into my body are going to, could potentially impact it, right? Because I'm, we know with like keratoconus uh, and, and sure, probably with midday fogging too, right? You're going to have some sort of predisposition, you know, genetics. And it might not be a hereditary thing. Like I got it from my mom, but it might be, you know, the way my genes and DNA are set up. I'm a little less able to handle oxidative stress than that guy over there is because of, you know, things we don't know about, some things we do know about. Um, but ultimately, in keratoconus, you seem less able to handle a stressful situation or a stressful environment. And that seems to be the case with a lot of these. and figuratively. Right? I mean, I'm teasing. just I'm teasing. saying but not saying. They can't see. They can't um, see. No, but so, so like, for, how, like, how do you boil that down to like a quick, yeah, right? So Without sounding like woo-woo, go drink more water and sure, be keto sure. well, or try say, keto. You can Sure. You can very specifically say, well, one easy thing you can look at is we know that there is an increase in oxidative stress on the ocular surface in keratoconus. So mm-hmm. eating things that are high in antioxidants, the same way we say that for the macula, right? We just don't know as much about it in keratoconus, but that's an easy one. It's good for all of your body. It's good, you know, and, and, and I kind of use it to explain to patients like, look, just because we don't know exactly what the mechanism is, like putting the things in your body that help protect us against damage, which is the antioxidant pathway, right? It's oxidative stress causes cells damage. So if you can put antioxidant things, which are in green leafy vegetables, blueberry, right? Those foods that we know are, are so good for us. Um, yes, you're giving your body the tools that it needs to fight off some of this stress that could, you know, it's, it doesn't hurt. And then, you know, it's good for the other things. Maria, I have to be honest, you know, like in, in our practice, I routinely discuss body health, you know, the proper nutrients, things in our AMD population, geriatrics, children. I do not really spend time discussing things like this with my patients that have keratoconus. That's like very interesting. And why not? Because you're right. These are things that we know to help almost every system. And why wouldn't it? It's as the evidence comes out more and more, maybe it will become a standard of care in our brochures of, you know, how, what, what are the things that you can modify in your life? Because a lot of things are really out of the control of the patient when it comes to keratoconus, for example, aside from the eye rubbing and the, you know, control of allergy, go for your appointments, you know, follow regularly so you can get cross-linked if you need it. So there, that's on the patient to show up for those appointments. Other than that, there's a lot that's really out of their control, but maybe with the up and coming research, maybe there are things that will be more modifiable. Um, including, you know, nutrition. And I'm interested to hear what comes out down the pipeline in terms of not just what we consume, but the flora in our, the bacteria biome in our body that how does that, that's another layer of complexity, you know, not only what do we consume, what are we around, but how does that individual body process things? Just like you said, some people are predisposed to not managing oxidative stress. It's all part of that system. And it's really a cool, cool area. Yeah. And I mean, just to like very quickly kind of dovetail on that a little bit, you know, 
with the microbiota, and, and we don't really know a lot about the microbiota of the eye in terms of keratoconus. We know a lot about it in other in other diseases, but and I haven't looked that much into it. Maybe there's groups doing work on it, but I don't know. But but certainly in the gut, um, you know, this this the the microbiome has a huge impact circling back to the like neutrophil population, which is the main immune cell in our body. It makes up about 60 to 70% of the, of all immune cells. And so their role in balancing inflammation in throughout the body is essential. And so some, in some senses, those same populations of neutrophils that are being affected and impacted by the gut, right? Because the, the microbiome is going to send signals to the gut and, and that whole space saying, we need this type of, you know, cells to be circulating and we need this, right? Those are still communicating with the ocular surface too. So actually in our lab, we're looking specifically at neutrophils and we're doing a project right now where we're doing single cell sequencing of all the immune cells on the ocular surface in keratoconus. So maybe more to come there. Well, it's just, it's, it's this higher level thinking. And this is fascinating because it all would make sense in theory, knowing this science that all of these factors actually have more of an impact on eye health, you know, whether it be keratoconus, patients that are prone to fogging with their scleral lenses or other ocular surface diseases, you know, it's, this is, it, it kind of would make sense. So now when people say, you know, I didn't sleep last night. That's why my lenses are, or like I had chips and then I touched my, you know, like the weird things. Maybe they're actually onto something, Maybe right? there's something to it. Maybe I mean, listen. how many times you bring that up? How many times do you have patients that come in and say, oh, my eyes are super red because I haven't been sleeping all week. Well, and we're like, yeah, of course, but we never think like, yes, you're not sleeping as well. So there's more inflammation. Yep. Like that's what's happening. Yep. Yep. Um, and who knows how that can contribute to the disease? And maybe that's what got you there. Not that I'm like, I, I don't give them like a, you did this to you yourself. You don't shame them. <laughs> right. I shame them a little. Like get at well, least six or more Well, because they feel so bad. They're like, wait, especially the eye rubbing, like the yeah. moms are like, well, he always rubbed his eyes. I didn't know. I'm like, you couldn't have. Yeah, you sorry. wouldn't have known. Well, I think- did you guys ever have a, did you ever have a phase in your life where you felt that you really functioned optimally, you know, when you're, you know, busy <laughs> right student with like right six now. hours of sleep? Awesome. And then now with all these studies coming out to, you know, sleep, it's these basics that we know. And it's, it's, that's another area that I actually now realize it does have a role in inflammation too. It's all these things, Absolutely. all the basics. No, Why do we not sleep, sleep drink water, sleep and eat our leafy greens? It's, the life would be so much better if that was done no, 100% I try, of the time. You know, you can't be like 100% healthy in all ways of life. So I like pick and choose. Sleeping is one of the ones I'm like, that's the easiest way to be healthy. Healthy. It's the most enjoyable <laughs> way of being healthy, right? Like if I could sleep eight hours a day or go Oh, do you have like a three, like a true schedule? Like I must go to bed by 10 or it's like I must I sleep, sleep eight hours. Like, oh. uh, a little bit of both. Okay. I try both. Okay. I try to go to sleep like 9.30 or 10 and get eight hours. Like so, that. you know, I actually, this is funny. I just bought a book on sleep because I was at an airport What's and it I called? thought I'd have time to read it. Uh, here, I'll get, uh, you know what? I can actually I saw get it. it. I saw it downstairs. Did you see it on my, yeah. So yeah, it's I'll, on the table. I'll send it. I'll send you the we'll link. put the link in the show and, notes. Yeah, I'll send you the link. I will. And, uh, yeah, it's really interesting because one thing I read is not only does the amount of sleep matter, but the routine. So if you're always like getting eight hours that shifts, if you are some days you stay up till midnight, sleep eight hours, or some days you go to bed at 830 and sleep those eight hours, that is is worse on your body than that constant routine. So it goes back to our very roots, 
you know, rise We're like the sun, big infants. Fall at the sun. Yeah, we should big be infants. Start. We do best on a, on a good, That's solid right. routine. That's right. oh, it is true. Infants. It's just like, yeah, it's true. It's our keystone uh, habit those... we should be good about, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Unless you're in Canada in the winter when it's always dark and those, actually, that would actually be nice if we like slept um, with the sun because we'd probably be sleeping 12 hours a night. It's It'd great. Be better. Huh. Middle of winter around Christmas. That's one really uh, nice big line. perk in Costa Rica. We have 12 hours a day of sun and 12 hours a day of sun. Or sorry, <laughs> and sun. Uh, sun and sun. Night. Like it rises every day every around day? 5.30 and goes down every day around 6. And it changes like 30 like minutes. Even <clears throat> Because we're so close to the equator, it's like 30-minute difference or maybe even less than that year-round. That is so cool. It's really sad in the summer because I'm – like being from Seattle, it was like the most beautiful long nights of summer. But it is a great way to like keep a nice routine. And Did you guys know that in northern Canada – there are there's a period of time in the summer where it's 24 hour daylight as oh, well. I love that. So people that. black That's out. Like, you have to wear a you know sleep mask because it can throw you off if you're just visiting. It's just bright. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Really uh, crazy. Yeah, you love that world. until like this winter you solstice. Love it until you don't love it. Yeah, yeah and then it's like, like, like mostly blackness. dark. Yeah, yeah, I get so depressed just thinking you about just wear the a fact that we're going to work when you're walking around in the at noon. It's just, as soon as we pass the longest day of the year, you know, it's like June 20th or whatever, 21st. It's like leading up to it. I'm like, this is the best day. Like these are the best days ever. I love life. And then as soon as it passes, it's like kind of your birthday passing. And it like starts to get further. further. Like, like the days like, are getting no. shorter. I know. It's shorter. slowly spiraling downwards. I'm like, I can't. I just can't. I'm too scared to be outside in the dark. It'll be the perfect <laughs> time to come it. visit Costa Rica. Okay. I want to end on something fun. You, I recently, this is not super recent, but in April this past year, there was a, um, I think it was in Optometry Times. I saw an article that you wrote, Basic and Beyond. So it's technology for every level of scleral management. That was the headline of your article. So I'm going to link it for anyone who wants to read about it. But <clears throat> I want to know what you think the best advice is for a current doc, new, old, doesn't matter, but they want to add scleral lenses to their arsenal. Let's be realistic of like what you think is... No, all money aside, but keep it in mind, like what is like one or two things aside from your scleral lens fitting set that you think like do this and you will accelerate the fastest. It'll waste the least amount of chair time. Your patients will be happiest. You'll, you'll, you'll be a master fastest. Like what do you think is your best advice? Sheila, do you want to guess my answer? Well, I know the answer that we, I think we all, the, well, we yeah. Talk- I know the answer. So she's like, I don't need to get her chest out. She's like, I, I can tell. Uh, scleral topographer, 100%, 150% get a scleral topographer. I'm like obsessed. I, that's my new, and I get it. It's like, it seems expensive, but it's not. I think you can get them for like 10 grand or less. Like, Jump you get refurbished. Sometimes it's like just having to finding one because you have like EGLA, SMAP, or CSP. Those are the three ones we can get in the US. I know that I won't like, market unsponsored but like is there one that's like easier to use i know you've used them all yeah no and seriously like un like unsolicited like i don't i think it depends on who you work with and what's available because i know like smap i've had some people be like it's hard to get and if i know like smap only works with lenses from visionary optics who i love like but if you're you know if you're already working with them then like that's a Mm no-brainer um the eaglet is what sheila uses and i've used it's fine you know like and you can connect with a bunch of different lenses um the csp 
I, we also like the CSP also connects with a bunch of different lenses. It's just, you have to have a Pentacam, you have to have the right software. So I say, if you already have a Pentacam, easiest thing to do is ask your Pentacam rep if you can get the CSP, if it's available with your model. Like for ours. Yeah. It's just an upgrade. Right. It's, I think it's just an upgrade. It's little, for some little reason, dollars and cents. Right. So like that one, but like if you can measure that, like my success rate on like a one lens being my final lens is like, I probably like 60 or 70% of my lenses are like the first one is the right one. And that was never the case before. But if you, um, if, if you think about it, it's, you know, it's the same thing as these analogies that we've been discussing for now years and including dinner last night is, you know, if the dental, you're not going to fit a mouth guard without taking a impression. You're like it's, it doesn't have to be that, you know, you can fit sclerals in many different ways, but absolutely it's an advantage to know what you're dealing with before you place something on it. And, you know, I've been, we've been talking about this now for years in that ocular surface topography at one point, you know, was very novel. It still is a newer technology, but so was corneal topography at one point. Totally. At one point, only one or two offices or maybe just the kind of the leaders in the, you know, early adopters would have that. And now, like, I, I wouldn't even consider, I would, you know, avoid getting, trying to do a corneal GP theater in OrthoK without understanding that ocular shape in that space where the lens lands. No different for squirrels. It's just, it's a, it's an essential. Um, that's well, where we're moving. And the other thing, like I really think, and I didn't use to that, that we're moving in an area where pretty much every scleral lens will be just custom, like just yeah. a, like a freeform lens, mm -hmm. because now we have this technology. We know we can do it. Like all of these topographies are being used to build mold, like not molded lenses, but essentially like build a 3D image and, and build it off that. So it's not, spherical quadrant specific so i think it's kind of like almost like yeah we were talking about where you go to like get impressions at the dentist they don't just like wing it and be like oh yeah you look like you're like spherical or toric <laughs> teeth it's like no they just measure it and create a um you know piece of plastic that that fits that mold it's not you know we're in the technology is way there at this point and we so, are we are it's not it's we're here it's not it's I not think, a thing in the future anymore i think too is especially as a new like as a new you know, tool in your toolkit. Scleral lenses are so honestly expensive. It's expensive for chair time, expensive to teach your staff how to train and talk about it and costs a lot to the patient. Like there's a lot of expenses involved both on your side as a practice owner and on the patient side, a little alone, like how much effort they need to learn how to use the lenses. Like there's a lot that goes into it. And especially as a new fitter, if you don't have that like built in, whether it be a one year residency or whatever, you will almost cheat and get that with a scleral topographer, right? Mm -hmm. So if you actually want to make that step in, why dip your toes if you're probably going to back out? Because how many times, I know each of you can probably say the same thing. How many times have you gone to like, whether it's like a fitting lab or something and you see the same faces coming back again and again and you're like, how, how's it been? And they're like, oh, I fit like one or two, right? Like they're not really doing it because it's hard and it takes so much more expertise than, than it really is given credit for because it's not fitting the cornea, right? Like it's just fitting the sclera, truly. So if you don't actually know how to fit the sclera, you don't see those subtle signs that it takes to fit the sclera, that takes a long time to really understand on your own. Mm -hmm. From a, you know, to, to pin off of that, Brea, 
furthermore, I mean, those that fit one or two a year, what I see in our community is that we, because we teach a lot as well. So Andrea and I are, and our our office is all, you know, we're residency trained contact lens fitters. We tend to do a lot, you know, of community kind of like we speak for our provincial associations. We're teaching our community, you know, we want to rise the tide. We want our colleagues to succeed. And what I see as the ones that dabble and then kind of send the patient back to us after it's, it's not only hard if you're only fitting a few um, without the right equipment and all this, but also to actually make money um, because you'll find that, you know, unless you have the right volume and you actually have the right tools and expertise, um, the, you'll see people 20 times and it just becomes a drain. You know, you're ordering remakes that are, you're getting charged. So from a practice management perspective, it's challenging too. But then when you get there, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I know th- yeah, I would, and I'm not no practice, no private practice <laughs> management expert, but you know, what I've sort of seen is just, you know, if you're going to do one or two a year, like there's a balance between like, you want to offer a service to people in your community if it's, if it's not otherwise accessible to them, but the same way I'm not going to be doing like specialty glaucoma exams. I don't think like, it's not something that you have to be able to do if you don't want to invest in it and do it. Like I would almost say, and again, like fit to a year, fit 10 a year, do, do what works for you. But if you, I I would say like anything, like if I was going to start like doing more with glaucoma, I I would probably go like more all in and Mm -hmm. just be like, okay, this is going to be a part of my practice model now Mm -hmm. because scleral lenses is not something to like, it's just not going to be fun for you and it's not going to be good for the patient. And it's like, you can refer these to people who will do it. Um, Anyways, I, I think that it's I, the people I'm talking to with the scleral topographers, like if you want to do it, if you want to see, mm-hmm. you know, pay, several patients per month or, you know, if you want to start to, then that's the way to be the most successful with it. Because I've also seen, you're right, like these one off where private practice, I get this in Houston and I love, I'm happy to help. That's right. Yeah. But in terms of what's best for the patient, it's like I watch them come back and back and like some of these trying to order empirically on these wacky eyes where I'm like, <laughs> whoa, 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 like you, you got to get a map. You can't do that, right? <laughs> you can't do that. Like yeah. you've got to get more information or else you're just going to, and these patients are driving three hours. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, I practice in Houston, I'm like, they could have just come to us at the school. Like, I know I'm not trying to steal a patient, but like, just send them where they need to go and recognize if you can do it or not. Totally. Well, Dr. Walker, how do people learn more from you if they want to? Do you have upcoming lectures? Where can they see you? How can they learn from you? Um, so I'm sure I have lots of things recorded on Google or YouTube or something somewhere. So you can Google me. I have people find stuff about me sometimes and, and t- tell me. So I know it's out there. And then I'll be at Academy, Sheila and, and we're, all three of us are doing, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a rapid fire with Karen Lee at Academy. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm around. You can find me. I do SLS webinars a lot. I'm on a lot of random online webinars. So amazing. You can find it there. Or if you go on PubMed, I publish if you're research oriented. I have some stuff on PubMed. Well, thank you so much for everything you yeah. do in the field of scleral lenses, all the research you do to help all of us in the trenches learn more and better answer all these crazy questions we have from our patients. And yeah, can't wait to see you next time. Thank you again for coming yeah. on. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the time you spent with us. It's fantastic. Well, we've come to the end for today. We do want to hear from you. So reach out to us with your feedback, questions, stories, things you're interested in hearing from us, either through our Instagram or Facebook. We can't close today's show 
was without saying thanks to Valley Contacts for both making great products and for being amazing people to work with. Be sure to tune in and listen to our next episodes, but until then, try not to blink.